Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me, yeah, I got swagger, they see me, see me strutting, all sweating daggers, believe it, I'm the real thing, but I gotta switch it on. Today we have an especially extra special guest on the grid. In fact, I'm here with my brother, Greg Shahadi. A lot of people know Greg as the founder of the Pro Chess League and the US Chess School, but he also played poker for many years. He was a professional poker player and short stack theoretician until the day that Black Friday hit. He joins us today to take a trip down memory lane before Twitter and Instagram, YouTube and Twitch, where hand analysis, gossip, and Troll Attacks had a clear center stage, the 2 plus 2 forums. Greg was a prolific poster with enough hands to ensure that even if he makes it to 120 years old, as of course we all hope, he'll still have a respectable number of posts per day. Today, he talks to us about the golden age of sitting goes, where he played with some of the most successful high rollers today. and. A pretty respectable combo, ace-nine suited. Greg, set this hand up for us. All right, so it's like just a normal sit-and-go. You know, which I'm playing dozens and dozens and dozens every day. Uh, there's three players left. Now, in, in these sit-and-goes, ten players are playing. The top three get paid. So we're all in the money. Uh, first place is 1000 bucks. Second, 600 Third is 400 It's like a $200 buy-in. I'm in the big blind, and I have 11 and a half big blinds. Uh, the small blind has, I think, six and a half big blinds. And then, like, the button has, like, two and a half big blinds. I just added an extra half big blind there somehow. But it's basically the amount that we had left. So we're all super short stacked, which is always what happens at the end of these sit and goes. And the small blind goes all in for 6.5 big blinds, which, you know, in normal... <laughs> Normal world, you should do with a huge amount of hands. I mean, you should do a little less because the guy in the button has almost no chips. But still, we're not in the bubble or anything. So you should still be pushing with like a decent amount of hands. And I had ace nine suited in the big blind. And, you know, I called because ace nine suited is a good hand when your opponent pushes with six big blinds. So that's the hand. I just listened to some of your past shows where like, there's these hands and people are, you know, it's going to the river and people are folding flushes and calling down with like fourth pair. And I'm just calling six big blind all in with ace nine suit. That's my hand. <laughs> um, yeah, but what's interesting about this hand, which is of course you're going to get into, yeah. is it shows this culture that a lot of professional players don't even know about today before a lot of equity calculators and ICM calculators where people were trying to figure things out for themselves on the 2 plus 2 forums. Tell us about how you ended up posting this hand on 2 plus 2. Somebody must have been watching at the time and thought that this call with ace-9, let's call it diamonds, 
And you called with Ace Nine of Diamonds, and what what happened? Somebody was watching and thought that maybe that was out of line. Uh, yeah, this guy Dolly Man, who was also like one of the top posters, and you know, a winning player at the high stakes, was like, "Oh come on, this is an obvious fault." <laughs> and I'm like, "What are you insane?" Um, the split between like top players' opinions was just so massive. I mean, six big blinds. I'm sitting there with Ace Nine suited. And, and the, the thought process was the small line is going to be really tight because the, the guy has two and a half big blinds in the button. And so I should fold almost everything. And that if I do call, I have like 30, 33% equity or something. And in my opinion, it's just not like realistic at all. Nowadays, of course, everyone in the world knows how like absurdly easy this call is. But back then, people didn't realize it. I had done enough math to know like it's really hard for this to be a fold. I mean, we're not even on the bubble. You know, he's going for, get third to second place is 400, 600, 1,000. So usually at this point, you know, you are trying to get first place. I mean, you of course have to consider the extra 200 bucks in your decision. So he's going to be a little tighter than if it was just heads up. Anybody's going to push enough hands there to make it a call. And the thought process was this guy's really tight. And I'm like, nobody's that tight, man. It's just not a thing. <laughs> well, I looked at the thread before we came over and I printed out some of the responses. I thought some of them were quite interesting. One from Gigabet says it's almost always a mistake to call in this situation yeah, yeah. against a tight player um you have half the chips in play as mm. it stands and the tight player has a third of the chips you rarely have more than a 64 lead and by giving up the 500 you give a chance to collect 750 whenever you are the button so he goes on and explains his own math for why he thinks that you should usually fold in this situation in this particular spot now after this another chess player david john david john was senior master uh he's a good player yeah, yeah i don't, I don't, I don't know if he was player. quite that high but he was very like 23 maybe 2400 he was a strong player right david john um from texas so his reply was at some point because you of course as often happens on two plus two think of it like twitter but 15 years ago they went back and forth a little bit and he ended up saying to one of the players Dalimon, who was also agreeing that you should probably fold i think that by now it should be obvious i'm clearly superior to you in the areas of hand analysis and sit and go proficiency trying to elaborate further on this topic would be tantamount to attempting to teach quantum physics to a circus monkey <laughs> He's saying that to me? No, 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 no. He's oh. saying that to the guys who disagree with you. Oh, okay. So chess players stick together. David John was never serious when he would post oh, there, so he's just a silly yeah. head. Yeah, I figured that I figured that was kind of a joke, but that that does kind of there was a lot of back and forth and trolling going yeah. on in these conversations, even among people who are friends, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, basically there was a war on two plus two in the sit and go forum, in my opinion. There was a war of two schools of thoughts. My school of thought which I think eventually won this war, was math is important and matters in poker. The other school of thought was wizard wee and like tricks and like outplaying people with three big blinds. That's what you have to do in poker. You know, you have to like, I don't know how to explain it, but like Gigabet was like the, the leader of like this group of wizards who never wanted to do like the obvious thing. Like five big blinds, king 10, you should min raise or you should fold. I mean, it didn't even make any sense. But like he had this like legion of followers who was sure that he was like the guru and knew everything about poker. Like his stats showed that he was a winner. But I mean, some of the hands were just like 
Like, if you looked at them today, like, if, if this guy came today posting this stuff, he would be laughed out, laughed out of the forum. It hurt my brain when you read that explanation about what he was saying, why you should fold ace nine. Can you read it again? Because I was just like, I need to respond to it. <laughs> it was uh, starting to get hard to keep reading it. Now, to be fair, I think yeah. almost any player who posted hands from 15 years ago, even if they were very, very talented, many of them would be laughable, just kind of in the same way that you sometimes have these events where people read their journals from high school out loud and everybody laughs about all the amazingly insightful overly emotional things that they said. I think that maybe that's a bit unfair. People used to be bad at poker and then often they got good. But what I think is fascinating is that we still have this type of conversation in poker about math versus feel. Um, there are still people who believe that things like solvers and calculators oversimplify the game and that there are many other feel elements to it. And actually that might be true. But in this particular situation, I think most people would agree with you now. Yeah, no, of course, like there's some times when you can overdo the math. Like, like if there's like 16 big blinds and you know you know that pushing all in is positive EV but you know there could be something better to do for whatever reason but six big blinds you're kind of like there's not much room for playing outplaying your opponent but you can also nail that down quite precisely like this was before you had ICMizer and Hold'em Resources calculator programs like that which you know we did for curiosity's sake put this into the HRC and the villain in the hand would have had to have been jamming about 15% of hands. So really a small number of hands in order to make this a fault. And one of the hands he did jam was not in that range anyway, so... It was King-9? I think he had Queen-Jack or something. It would have had to just be like such an absurdly tight range. Now, actually, once in a while, that does happen, especially in live satellites. People sometimes ask me questions like that. They, they describe this villain and they say they're so tight, they're probably really jamming the top 10%. And yet, sometimes you, you really get surprised. And that, I think that's a big reason why people like you would rely on the math. Because you'd say you might think this, but you could also be wrong. And how do you put a percentage on the fact that you might be wrong about your overly tight ranges? You mean in terms of like folding because you think the person might have an overly tight range? Mm -hmm. Well, usually in that case, if you call and they do have that overly tight range, yeah, maybe it's minus EV, but it's probably not going to be like some massive minus EV, whereas if they just don't have that stupidly tight range, which is going to happen a lot, going to be plus EV, sometimes pretty big. So, I mean, you have to be really sure of it. I thought you used to have a rule where you had like this like fudge range where you would always give somebody like a 10% WTF. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At any point, there's like 10% chance the person completely out of their mind, like no matter who they are and just has like some random two cards. Um, this was Dan Harrington advice in like I think his first book and I think it's really true like a lot of the time you'll see people like start putting people in all these ranges then they'll call and they'll turn over like complete nonsense hand that wasn't taken into account at all like like none of it makes any sense at any point you know so anyway this gigabet guy he had a lot of followers who believed in his mantra of I guess what is it a combination of math and field play with a focus on the field yes I know that there were some of his followers who were actually really worried about your overly rigid mathematical so. approach. <laughs> so how did this play out? People were worried about you. You have the ace nine of diamonds. Nobody's worried. <laughs> it was a real intellectual philosophical war, like back and forth every day. People would post their hand histories. I would say, you have eight big blinds and ace three suited, go all in. And then Gigabet would say, well, you know, 
the way I see it, five hands into the future based on these blind positions, this guy's probably gonna be all in. And then he, this guy's gonna fold. So then the hand after that, you can go all in and everyone's gonna fold with not, I mean, it just didn't make any sense. But like he would write these really long explanations about what's gonna happen four hands later and why you shouldn't put all your chips in like the most obvious all in in, in history. Every day somebody would post a hand, I would say one thing, he would say the other thing. And like half the people would agree with him, half the people would agree with me. And I would just be screaming back and forth like an idiot. At this point, like, I was making, like, more money than ever made in my life. I was just like, in this time, you, I was having, like, a 10 to 15% ROI in $200 sit and goes, which is just, like, impossible. I think you can barely get 2% nowadays, if you can even get that. And it was just like I was printing money, like, making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars an hour, playing, like, 8 to 12 games at once, and just crushing everybody. But sometime around now... I'd say his number one follower, like his number one henchman, who, you know, approached poker the same way, sent me a private message on 2 plus 2. It was full of concern. It was like, hey, Curtains, you know, I know you, you think you know a lot about poker and, you know, you post these ideas all the time about math and whatever, but I'm just really worried about you because, you know, you seem like a nice guy. And if you keep playing this way, I'm like just really worried you're going to lose all your money. And so I think you should really look in the mirror and like think about what we're saying and, you know, start to think about how to play that way. I am so regretful that I didn't save this message because it was the most beautiful. <laughs> it sounds nice. Like, do you think it was sincere? I have no idea. Like, how can you be that delusional? I was like so, I had, clearly there were sites where you could see how well people were doing. I was completely destroying the games. And, you know, the guy is telling me when I have more money than I've ever had in my life that, you know, I'm on the verge of going broke because I, you know, I don't know. The way he was thinking about it, I would imagine that, like, you're winning now, but when poker gets harder, it'll become less mathematical. He was saying that I play badly, my ideas are so wrong that I'm in really serious danger of just, like, losing all my money. About the math in those days, there wasn't ICMizer, HRC, Snapchat. Back in those days... <laughs> How could you prove this math? Like, what were you using? And what I was using back then, it's so rudimentary now. The number one thing I used to actually figure out how to win big at sit and goes was this thing called like the Carlson Sklansky numbers. It was just some kind of game theory type thing where if you're heads up and your only choices are to go all in or fold, how many big blinds you need to have with each hand to make it profitable. Because it kind of just teaches you the value of hands. And it teaches you, like, you know, a hand like Ace-Nine suited is worth, like, in one of those push-fold games, is worth, like, like 100 big blinds or something. Maybe not 100, maybe, like, 60 or something. It's right. a good hand, you know, basically. Yeah, so you've taken up a, a very coveted hand in the grid. You know, actually, Ace-Nine suited, I think, in deeper MTTs, for some reason, it's one of those hands that, you know, you're often B-pipping, but it's you're often playing, but uh -huh. it's often kind of close between calling and three-betting. I just... Think of a lot of times where ace nine suited being kind of like a marginal hand in that respect. So I feel that it's it is a hand that people kind of struggle with and think about a lot because they're they're not sure which of those two options to play with it. But not in this hand. <laughs> <laughs> when the two options are are fold or call, exactly. Usually it's a little bit easier. It's important to say like this is kind of like this is not just some random donkeys arguing that I should fold. These are like literally the people who are thought to be the best in the world at this game. Like amongst the best in the world. You had some very well-known players responding against this thread. 
including Z Justin, who did come onto your side. He said he can't imagine anybody being tight enough for this to be a fault. But Z Justin was also in these sittingos. Of course, Z Justin being Justin Bonomo, who's now one of the winningest MTT players ever. Uh, yeah, he was, I mean, him along with um, J-Man, Raptor. I wanted you on the grid to talk about this like rich history of sitting goes on 2 plus 2. But the funny thing is, the most famous single game that you ever played in poker was not a poker hand, right? It was a chess game. And that was against Durr, but it was arranged by David Benefield. How did that come about? Were you guys friends from the 2 plus 2 circles? Yeah, we would chat a lot, like on AOL Instant Messenger. I think he was like kind of up and coming into the sit and goes. So like he was playing like 12 hours a day, like hundreds of sit and goes every day. Raptor was talking to me on Instant Messenger. And it was like, you know, Durr, my roommate, he's so full of shit, man. Can you do something about this? And I'm like, what's up? He's like, he says he could beat anyone in the world in chess if they start without a rook. And I'm like, no way, man. You don't even barely, you barely know how to play. You know, this guy, Curtains, he's a professional. Um, I just don't see it happening. And there's like, whatever, I'll bet any amount of money. Uh, nobody can beat me if they start without a rook. And he's like begging me, like, please, at the World Series, please play this guy. And, and let me like bet a lot of money on you. And I'm like, okay. And we arranged some deal where I get a percentage of the, the winnings. And so I went to the World Series and... It's just somehow it never materialized and I was about to go home and Raptor found out I was about to go home. He was like, hey man, can you please stay a little more? Because like, Durr is like playing all these like high stakes games right now. He's not ready to play you, but like in a few days, guarantee play. And I was like, okay, I can extend my trip, but I need to at this point like get paid even if he doesn't play. Like I forget, we, we came up with some deal. Eventually, you know, they had a big party at their house. And I went to go play. And what's funny about this is this was like the first time I really met a lot of these these guys from 2 Plus 2. Uh, I think like Galfond and like Peter Jett and Andrew Robel. So we get there and Durr is like stuck like maybe like tens of thousands of dollars in some games. So he's like, I can't play now. So Raptor's like, um, we have a problem. He doesn't want to come play because he's like losing all this money. And I'm like, whatever, I'll just wait. So I think we didn't start till like one in the morning. And the idea was we're going to play one chess game for, I think, $50,000 where I start without a rook. I was going to get, I forget what percent, I think just 10% of the winnings and no, none of the losses. Because starting without a rook is really dangerous. Like, if, if the opponent's any good at all, I may have just no chance. If they're rated like 1,500, I, I mean, I have a chance, but like, it's really dangerous. So like I could just be giving away money. So I was really nervous to put up my own money when I actually don't know how strong Durr is. Like he could be a decent player. One thing that was funny is before we played the game for like $50,000, he wanted to play a practice game. But in the practice game, I start without a knight. And for some reason, this practice game was for like $5,000 also. Uh, it's a really weird practice game. Uh, and I was like, okay, and I, I think I got some, oh, and we also decided that the match was going to be best two out of three, so I was like, listen, I'm going to be here till like five in the morning playing this guy, and I ended up increasing, like, the amount that I would get if I won to, like, 8,000 or something. Um, the practice game, though, it was very clear to me that he had no chance. Could have made a move where if he responded incorrectly, I could have mated him in two, and I thought that would look really bad and he might back out. 
So I didn't play that move just out of the fear that he would fall into my mate. And so instead I ended up winning in like 30 moves. But at that point I was like telling Raptor like, hey, unless he's hustling me here, like you're going to win for sure. There's no no chance. Like if you had known what you had known after that practice game, you probably would have tried to get more action. But you know, you uh, being a man of your word, you just went with the initial stipulations. Well, I mean, I was getting $8,000 to play a few chess games. Like that's <laughs> like no risk. I'm not risking anything. It's just like my appearance fee for the night. That's not something that was normal for me, you know? So I'm, like, happy to take the money. I wasn't trying to be greedy here. Um, other people were risking lots and lots of money. And the second game, he played a little bit better, though, right? He did play better in the Rook Odds games. I mean, you know, he was a decent player. Like, he wasn't, like, some terrible, hopeless player. He managed to, like, make the game, like, interesting for, like, 10, 15 moves. But then at some point, like, I'll win a piece, or, like, a knight or something. And then it's, like, I'm barely even down anything anymore. Another funny thing we had, we, we set the chess clocks... And usually when you run out of time, you lose the game. But in this case, it was like every minute over his time that he spent would cost him like another $1,000 or something. So he could keep playing and keep thinking, but it would cost him money. I know that you were a bit of the envy of the chess world for a little while after that. Is people, you know, didn't know all the details of the backing arrangement. Mm -hmm. And there was this like kind of legend of the 50K game. They probably thought you made what was then more than an average year salary in one night. <laughs> this kind of story brought a lot of chess players to poker. This idea that there would be all this easy <laughs> money, you know, yeah. just hanging around there. And some of them, of course, were very successful. Others, not so much. If you're good at chess, there's definitely like a more likely chance you're going to be like a great poker player. But it's not an automatic thing. I mean, I think just people who are good at one game are slightly more likely or maybe significantly more likely to be able to use that. I don't think there's any like common characteristics that can like you can give to all chess slash poker players. Now I have to ask about the black rectangle because that came up on Twitter recently. So how did you come up with the idea of the black rectangle and what was it? When I was playing sit and goes and party poker, you know, I was playing nine, I can't remember if it was nine games or 12 games, which nowadays I guess is not a lot, but back then it was pretty decent. You know, you would get two cards, hands all in, you'd have your ace king, they'd have your queen jack, and you're sitting there staring at the flop, like, please, please, please. And I wasn't really like that because I'm like super not results oriented. Like I would actually try not to pay attention, but it's hard not to pay attention at all sometimes. So I got somebody to create this, this kind of thing where when I was all in, I could press a button and it would cover the middle of the table so I couldn't see the flop, turn, or river. So as soon as I got all in, I would press this button and that way all I see is where the chips go at the end and it would make it so that it wouldn't divert any of my attention to it. It wouldn't cost any of my emotional energy, kind of like, like, ooh, the flop's good, the turn's bad, the river's good. You know, I just wouldn't have to think about any of that stuff. I would either get the chips or I wouldn't. That's I wouldn't awesome. even know how I lost or won. I like the fact that like sometimes it's coming back a little bit to get excited if you win because it got to the point where people were literally like just watching somebody mention the different soups that you had that day in like one of the biggest tournaments of the year and it's televised and it kind of went in the other direction in my opinion. I tried to do the same because you want to look like you're cool and you don't care but really of course it's a big situation. You do kind of care. Um, you just want to keep your emotions cool so that it doesn't like affect the rest of your play especially if you're still going to be in. 
One of my best strengths was my emotional control. Like, I just didn't give a crap. I mean, I did a little bit, but, like, I think compared to most people, I was just, like, super stoic. Because, I, you know, I just knew I was a winner. And if I had a bad day, whatever, a bad hand or a bad beat, it's just, like, what just didn't matter. But I totally agree that it's not good for the game to look like that robot all the time. So if you can kind of find a way to show emotion, <laughs> it's a good thing. But at the same time, you know, I would also be really thoughtful of other people's feelings when you're playing because, like, I knew that most players I was playing with, like, in a live tournament, probably it meant more to them. They had more emotional investment about it. So, like, I don't want to celebrate right in their face when they lose a hand. On the other hand, if, like, if I beat you in this hand and, like, it seems like I literally don't care at all that I beat no, you, that also, that's also almost, like, you know, an F you. It's, like... It doesn't even like give me any excitement that like I've now busted you from the tournament. One good way to do it that I like is Phil Locke. Like he would have a lot of emotion, but it wouldn't be like celebrating when he wins. He would do something fun where he would like root for his opponent during the hand. Like his opponent would have deuces or his opponent would have an ace king and he would have a deuces and he'd be like, come on ace, come on king. You know, like just kind of like rooting for your opponent, making it fun. Something like that I think is, is a good way to show a lot of emotion without being rude. I, I, I just seen an example like that. Um, I gotta ask, were you ever wrong in your tens of thousands of posts on 2 plus 2? Like, were you ever wrong? Sure, I was wrong. I mean, like, okay, not about like these stupid basic math things, but like a million times I would be... Why are you asking? Do you have an example of me being <laughs> wrong that you're about to pull out? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just kind of a joke. Oh, I mean, of course, I, I don't have an example off the top of my head, but like... One thing that I actually thought made me good back then was not just the math, but I thought I was actually was good at outplaying people compared to my, my peers in competition. It's just that like the math that I use, I mean, it's so basic now, so, so basic. But back then, like people just didn't know it. So like that was my main advantage. But I was good at like bluffing people and like screwing around like when the blinds were a little deeper. And I think like people didn't do that. You want to hear a great example of what one of the top pros, how they were playing? And this player is now one of like the most well-known players in the world. So I was giving them like a, a lesson actually. <laughs> and the strategy back then in sit and goes with these young kids, because they're playing like so many tables, was just like fold every hand at the beginning of the tournament, you know, for like the first four levels, unless it's like an absolute monster, and then start pushing all in every hand. So like, I didn't play like that at all. I would play hands in the beginning when it made sense. And you know, I would get some chips here and there while at the same time being careful not to do anything too stupid. The blinds were 10, 15. And this is like the first level. You get like eight, I forget, 800 chips or a thousand chips. Let's say 800 chips. 10, 15, this player is in the small blind and like four people call. And his hand in the small blind is king, queen suited. It costs five chips to call. And he folded. And I was like, okay, and during the lesson, we're talking about this hand. And this is a winner, a clear winner at the hundred, I think it's playing hundred dollar sit and goes and winning like 5% ROI or something or 3% and wanted to get it up to like 10 or eight or something. And I was pretty sure it was a misclick. So I was like, hey, you know, in this hand, you folded king, queen suited and small blind. Um, was this intentional? And he was like, oh yeah, I just don't like to get involved early on. And so that was like, a really eye-opening moment for me because it's just so it's such a massive massive error but let me just say that this question started were you ever wrong in your tens of thousands of posts on two plus two and it ended <laughs> with a story about how you were right 
I was right about what? <laughs> about uh, the kinguin suited. Do you want me to try and talk about a time I was wrong? I can do it. I mean, just in general. Just like the general way I behaved online. <laughs> just, like I look, so I was looking at some old threads the other day on two plus two, and watching the way that I would talk about just getting these arguments and the language I would use, and it was like just re- it was just really weird. <laughs> it was like, was that really me? <laughs> speaking like this and people seem to like me so like people were you know i had my like fo- like the math followers the people that believed in the math but i mean sometimes i look at these posts i made and i really cringe like this war i'm telling you about like the math versus the wizards like it occupied a lot of my life and i just like i couldn't believe that everyone was so i couldn't see like that you have to play this way like it's just so obvious to me i'm like here is the most basic math in the world you can go all in with this hand, even if you have 70 big blinds, it's, and they see your... If you have 70 big blinds and you turn your face, hand face up, it's still profitable, and people are folding it for like eight big blinds. And I'm like, I'm showing you this. How can you still recommend folding? Like, how can this be? It drove me insane. This is the thing. Everyone wanted to be a genius. So it, it's, it's not... You're not a genius when you're like, oh, the math says go all in, so you go all in. But you're a genius when you're like, don't go all in because I can see five hands into the future and know the dynamics of the table. You know what I mean? Like, it makes you sound so smart. Everyone who's reading, they can't understand what you're talking about, but they know you win, so it's like you're this mystical god. And I feel like there was something like that that was, like, happening... And, and I, my ego, like, and, and you know what's funny, though? A lot of the most famous poker players now were people who posted prolifically and wanted to get their opinions out. They would get into, like, fights and, like, their ego would get involved. And think about how they could just not do that. They could just sit and just play poker. This has been really fascinating, this trip down memory lane. Now that you have um, so many memories in poker, I will remind you that poker, online poker, is probably coming to our own state, Pennsylvania, later in the year. Should we expect curtains back on perhaps some poker stars tables? Maybe. (laughs) One thing, by the way, we didn't mention I was like the laziest poker player ever. Like I had this rule where I would play like no more than three hours a day, no matter what. It's like as soon as I got to like a certain number of hands, I would stop playing. You know, I just felt like what's the point of playing poker if I'm going to spend all my time doing it? The point is like I don't really have to play anymore. And I do enjoy it. It's something I'll enjoy from time to time. I'm sure I'll play a tournament now and then. But I don't see myself being like a grinder ever, ever again. So we might see you some kind of like Sunday special with like KG veteran, who of course is our our dad with a very pure love of poker and a different approach in that way. You know, he loves live poker, you being more into the online poker scene. I have a suspicion that we'll all be in the same MTT. Thank you, Greg, so much for joining us. And if you want to hear Greg's very strong opinions, He's got a Twitter. That's probably the main place. Instagram, of course, as well. But then you have a blog website at gregjahadi.com where you can also find out about all his chess activities from the Pro Chess League to the U.S. Chess School. Although I don't have as many strong opinions as I did two years ago. I don't put them out there as much. (laughs) Right, so you actually have to meet him in person to find them out. I've been plugging those leaks. (laughs) All right, thanks again, Greg. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as the quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women where I host another podcast, Ladies Night. And follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram.
Yeah, I got talent. 